You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, so so far in our time in Ephesians 2, we have gotten down through uh, verse 13. So normally our application Sundays, we have covered an entire chapter. Um, I didn't want us to go that long, seeing that we've spent a little bit more time in chapter 2. I didn't want us to go that long in between uh, taking the Lord's Supper together, and so I decided to go ahead and uh, implement Application Sunday for this week, realizing that we may still have a couple of weeks left in um, the remaining part of chapter 2. You'll remember, though, that we kicked off chapter 2 by really looking back into chapter 1 and, and seeing some examples of what it looks like to be enlightened in the ways that chapter 1 talks about, uh, to the point where we're the type of people who are seeing and processing life circumstances through the lens of God's Word and what God's Word has to say about that. And so we said specifically that week that an enlightened heart sees all of life through the lens of the hope and the riches promised to us by God's power. Because remember, that's Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus and the other churches that were circulating this letter, that the people would come to a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation of the riches of God's grace and mercy, and that they would see these things and experience, experience these things in their life. And so I tried to share with you uh, some Old Testament examples of what it looks like to process life through the lens of God's Word and how that's to impact us. We talked specifically the example of Rahab, an individual who heard things about God, processed things about God, and it really impacted her emotions and her actions, right? She's an individual who hears about the great God of Israel and desires to run to the God of Israel for salvation. Um, She's uh, hearing these stories, hearing these recountings of who the God of Israel is, and she expresses faith and trust in him and turns her heart to him and goes running after him. Caleb is an example of somebody who sees past promises and allows those promises to supersede their understanding of present circumstances. Think about uh, that story we read from where the spies go into Canaan. They're trying to determine, are we going to go or are we going to retreat, right? And the, the spies come back, most of the spies come back and say, it's too hard. The people are too great. They're too strong. We can't do this. Caleb had a different take on it, right? Caleb and Joshua come back saying, look, the people are strong, and it is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but not for our God who has given us this land. He's promised it to us. And so he talks about how they are strong, they are great, they are mighty, but their protection has been taken from them because God has given this to us. And so we talked about as Christians, we, we're, we're called to be people who allow the promises of God to trump our present circumstances, right? So we see our circumstances through the promises of God like Caleb. We are to be people like Abraham who expect impossible feats to occur, things that don't make sense scientifically, things that don't make sense from the human earthly standpoint. We are to believe that these things are possible. Remember, Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and the Bible tells us that he did so. He he went towards that direction, believing that if God called him to actually kill his son on that altar, that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead because he had promised Isaac was the promised one, the chosen one, right? And so Abraham believed that resurrection was possible when resurrection was not a common thing for Abraham or others who were following Yahweh to even think about at that time. They didn't have stories in the Old Testament or, or even stories in the New Testament about resurrection, right? But believed that resurrection would occur if need be. <clears throat> we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how 
We expect the impossible, but we're content with what's, with, with what's probably the probable piece of our circumstance, right? Remember, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, look, our God is capable of saving us from that fiery furnace. Fully capable, fully powerful enough, can definitely do this if he chooses to. But what's their final response? Their final response is, is if he doesn't, we're okay with that as well because we're going to keep following him and not submit to you, not worship you. So as Christians, we can believe confidently and expect even for God to do great and mighty things, for God to heal uh, loved ones that are sick, for God to, to work and move in situations that feel impossible. But we can also be content with the probable, right? That, uh, that if God doesn't choose to work and move in a miraculous way, that we're okay with that. We can trust his goodness. We can trust his goodness. Um, I was reading last night in, in Samuel where uh, Samuel's talking to the priest and kind of telling him what God has has told him, and God's going to bring judgment, and, and he's going to work in certain ways. And, and uh, the priest responds and says, man, let God do what he's determined to be good, right? Let, let God do what he has determined to be good. And so that's what we want to be, people who are determined to believe that God is going to do what is best. And then we, talk, we talked about Daniel, <clears throat> a guy who gets information that all of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men are going to be killed because they can't tell him his dream and the interpretation of it. Everybody's kind of freaking out, and Daniel does the opposite. The Bible tells us he responds with prudence and prayer. It's why we carve out these times in our service to bring the requests of our people to our Heavenly Father, because that's our first response. That, is our, that should be our natural spiritual response, that when, when things are crumbling around us, when things seem out of control, things are unexpected, that we come to God in prayer. We don't freak out as individuals. We bring those cares to God. We cast them upon him. And that's certainly the, the example that Daniel gives to us. And so application-wise, I challenged you, rather than giving in to fear, worry, and anxiety about our circumstances, we need to react in faith with prayer as the immediate step for seeking relief, guidance, and help. So we led that into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we talked a little bit about the way that we were a couple of weeks ago. Remembering our pre-Christ past helps to keep us humble about our salvation, and it motivates us to live differently as we come to realize we're no longer meant to be swayed by our passions, the world, or Satan's influence. We talked about this past that's mentioned here, verses 1 through 3, that this used to be our true identity. This is who we were before Christ, but it's no longer our present reality. These are things that used to be true about us, and if we're a believer today, if you're a Christian here this morning, these things are no longer true about you. Your identity has been changed. It has been altered, right? But we said that we need to know this past. We need to remember this past, what it was like to be without Christ, because it keeps us in a worshipful mindset, right? It allows us to fight against the pride that some of us are tempted to feel. I'm certainly tempted to feel this. As we grow spiritually, sometimes we're blinded to the fact about how much we really needed Christ because as that distance grows from the time we came to Christ to 
where we're at in our sanctification process, man, our flesh starts to creep back in again and convinces us that we're pretty good people, that we do a pretty good job at things, and that we probably have earned the right to be loved by God. But if we remember this past, what it was like to be without Christ and how desperate we were for a Savior, I mean, that keeps us worshiping. It attacks our pride. It kills our pride because we remember the type of people we were without Christ. No matter what age you were when you got saved, you were in desperate need of Christ. But remembering our past, knowing our past, also keeps us growing because these things that are listed here, these are things that are descriptive of us before we come to Christ. They used to be true about us, but these should not be a regular reflection of who we are today. Right? Think about the things that are mentioned here. You once walked this way. You were once dead in your trespasses. You were once dead in your sins. You used to follow the course of this world. You used to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You used to live in the passions of your flesh. You used to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. You used to be children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But you're not now, right? That's the implication. You're not this way anymore. And so we need to remember this past so that we're reminded that we should be growing away from it. We should be looking different every single day. We should be moving towards holiness. That's the sanctification process of a believer, right? And so we shouldn't be this way anymore. We shouldn't look this way anymore. So we know the past to keep worshiping, to keep growing, but then also to keep sharing. The the spiritual bankruptcy that we see here in verses 1 through 3 reminds us that we as humans can't rescue other people out of this, right? Best gospel conversations, best gospel arguments, best apologetical presentation cannot convince somebody who's not a believer to become a believer without the Holy Spirit stepping in and doing something supernatural there. Man, what that does is it encourages us to share, but it also empowers us to keep sharing, realizing that the salvation that we're praying for and longing for in the heart of somebody else comes from God and not from us, right? So we faithfully share, we faithfully communicate the gospel, we faithfully call people to repentance and to salvation, and when they don't respond, we don't get discouraged thinking, man, I'm just not doing a very good job, I need to do better, I really messed that up, I'm not a very good communicator, right? We keep trusting that it's God who will take our words, and he's, he's designed it this way, right? He doesn't use angels. He doesn't use visions and dreams to bring somebody to salvation. He's used those things in the past and I think can still use some of those things today to point people to human beings to share the gospel with them, right? We talked a couple of weeks ago how he did that with Cornelius, right? Cornelius is a Gentile guy who's trying to follow God but doesn't know about Jesus, gives him a vision and says, you need to go talk to Peter so that human Peter can tell you the gospel and call you to salvation in Jesus Christ. So that's how God works. He uses humans to communicate the gospel. So we keep doing it, knowing that this is part of God's plan, but we don't get discouraged when we don't see fruit and results as quickly as we'd like to. We keep doing it, knowing that God will work and move as he chooses. We keep worshiping, we keep growing, we keep sharing. So the question I left you with that week, that week is the gap appropriately widening between what you were and what you're supposed to become. Man, think back to what you were before Christ. Think back to now what you are today with Christ. Is there a, is there a gap between what it looked like for you to walk according to this world and what it looks like now for you to walk in the Spirit with Christ? There should be a difference. And if there's not, we need to really step back and examine why. All right? 
We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We talked next about what it looks like to become alive together with Christ. This was on Easter uh, just a few weeks ago. And it brings us to verse 4. So while all these things are true about us, verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We said the resurrection of believers made possible by the resurrection of Christ is motivated by the mercy and love of God for the purpose of displaying his grace and kindness forever. Man, these verses are so rich in the purposes and plans of God here. We see part of God's plan is to intervene with sinful human man and to do something different, right? Children of wrath become children of his kindness and mercy and love. And that only happens because God intervenes, right? If left to our sinful condition, we would stay in that verses one through three description. Children of wrath. But God, in his mercy and his love, he intervenes and he does something different with us. He raises us to life. Initially, it's a spiritual sense. In the future, we know it to be a physical sense. When my grandmother passed away this week, she'd been kind of sick on and off for a little while, but really just old age caught up with her. Uh, she's 95 years old. Her mom lived to be, I think my mom said like 98 when she passed away. Uh, great genetics in my mom's side of the family for the females. I mean, they live long periods of time, right? Um, but even then, death catches up with all of us, right? The hope that we have is that she's going to be raised to life once again, right? That she is coming back and we will join with her. You guys know that our family has the tradition of, at Easter time, going to the gravesides of uh, family members that we've lost, and we use that as an opportunity to tell our kids, to remind our kids of the resurrection, to anticipate the hope of being reunited. I believe that that's part of what it looks like to grieve differently than lost people, right? We don't go to those gravesides mourning the loss anymore. We go with anticipation and excitement. We take pictures, and we tell stories, and we tell our kids, hey, you didn't know them like we knew them, but you're going to know them one day. If you, give your, if you give your life to Christ, and we always use that and point our kids who haven't done that yet, hey, for you to be included in this, it means you turn into Christ, right? And then you'll get to be reunited in the same ways that we'll be reunited with these loved ones that we've lost. And even at this Easter time, we were talking about next year, we're scheduled to go to my, uh, my papa's graveside, and uh, it's his wife that passed away this week. And we talked about, hey, nanny may not be with us, you know, by the time we go to the graveside next year. So it'll be, it'll be neat to be able to celebrate uh, her life and to anticipate her resurrection next year because she'll probably pass this year and she ended up passing this week. And so um, we look forward to that physical resurrection, right? But as believers, we experience a spiritual resurrection where we've been brought to life. We've been made alive with Christ, no longer dead in our sins, no longer destined to follow the course of this world. We now follow Jesus, and we can find confidence in the character of God and how he's working all of this out. That God treats me not according to my past, but according to his mercy and love. This but God section of verse four is so important because without it, we don't have salvation. 
Without it, we stay in our wrath, but God does something different. His character drives him to do something different. And so this causes us to maintain that humility that we've been talking about. Remember your time before Christ to stay humble because it's all about the work of God for our salvation. Being alive with Christ, even being seated in this position with Christ uh, where we're basically viewed as being in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus right now. Uh, This is all based on the work of God and not our good works, right? I told you that while we are all obviously physically right here and not in the heavenly places with Christ, the picture is is that our spot is guaranteed, right? It is locked in, and nobody can take that from us. You know, I illustrated it with my cousin who goes and reserves us seats at the fireworks every year and lays the blankets out. When he sends the picture that the blankets have been laid out, we know that nobody else is getting our spot, right? We went fishing uh, with some of the guys from church this past weekend, we got down to the beach, and we set up our spot, and we uh, camped out where we were going to fish. And then we could go back to the condo. We could go get lunch. We could go get snacks, knowing that when we come back, our spot is saved. Our spot is reserved, right? And so that's the way we see it from a spiritual sense with Christ. We're not physically there right now, but we are as good as there because our spot is reserved. He has made us alive together with Christ. Um, and then we experience this reassurance in the purposes of God because what we see in this verse why does God save us, right? Why does he go to these great lengths with the blood of Christ to show his mercy and his love? Well, we see he's got a long-term plan, a long-term purpose. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, not the current age, but in the coming ages, the ones that aren't here yet, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we're just getting started with God's plan. We're not even to the, to the climax part of it yet. So we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, things that have happened in the past. But God's salvation plan isn't even to the good part yet, right? The part where he shows his loving kindness to his people for all eternity in the coming ages, right? And so God is working everything and doing everything to get us to this point in eternity where we are gathered to him and then we are the objects of his kindness for all time, for all time. Our application from this week uh, at Easter time was simply to meditate on these truths, to meditate on the character of God, to meditate on the humility that we should have in light of the character of God, and to meditate on the fact that, that we are the objects of God's kindness now, starting now, not then, but starting now, and that just continues to grow. So again, circumstances that come our way, loved ones, friends, relatives that get sick, lost jobs, right? Changes in our circumstances that we don't anticipate. God has kindness in store for us. God has goodness in store for us in every single one of those. And we have to fight to to believe that truth, fight to believe that promise. But it's absolutely written for us in the words of God. And we can believe it and trust it. We're alive together with Christ. Then we went into uh, verses 8. 9 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Bible teaches that while good works do not come before our salvation, they necessarily come after our salvation, making them the fruit of our salvation rather than the root of our salvation. All right, so 
Good works are not where our salvation is grounded, at least not our good works, right? The good work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection is absolutely the root of our salvation. We'll celebrate that together today when we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? We'll celebrate his life through the bread. We'll celebrate his death through the juice, the blood that was shed. And then we celebrate the resurrection. Why? Because we're still doing the Lord's Supper today. Because the Bible tells us, Paul tells us that Jesus instructed the fact that we do this until he comes back. And then we partake of the supper with him. All right, so the fact that we are taking it today is also meant to remind us and point us to his resurrection and the hope of our future resurrection. But good works do come after our salvation, right? They're not the root, but they are the fruit of what God is doing in our life. Um, so we boast in being saved by God's work, not our own selves. We should absolutely boast in the cross of Christ. We should draw attention to people uh, about what Christ has done for us, right? So we boast in the work of God that our salvation in root, is rooted in his grace and faith that he has given to us. Uh, that way we don't have the performance-based boasting ourselves. It's not our good works that save us. Uh, but we do work in obedience to God's plan, right? So we don't, we don't get saved by our good works, but we certainly are saved to start working for him. Um, good works are the goal or the purpose of salvation. And here's where I really tried to, to encourage us and remind us that even after our salvation, we don't get to boast in our good works because they're predetermined. They're, they're planned beforehand, uh, the types of things that we're going to do, and God is working to make those things come about, right? And I told you that the things that I'm involved in, the things that I do today, and they're absolutely shaped by the family that God had me be born into, the experiences that God allowed me to have have created who I am today and the things that I'm involved in, the things that I do. So I can't even take credit for the things that I do today because those are absolutely rooted in God's plans for me, right? And so there's really no grounds for boasting ever in our salvation, not before we're saved that we did enough good to earn God's favor. Even after we're saved, we don't get to boast about the things that we're doing. We give all the credit and glory to God. The question that I asked for you this week was, are you prone to boast in your record-keeping of good works, or do you find yourself working so hard you lose count of the good being done through you? Remember, we looked at that passage in Matthew 25 where when Jesus comes back and he separates the sheep and the goats, the big difference is the goats are the ones saying, we've done a lot of good things for you, God. We've done a lot of good for you. And Jesus is saying, depart from me, I don't know you, right? And then he looks to the sheep, and the sheep are like, have we ever done these things for you, God? And he's like, yeah, every time you did this to other people, you were doing it unto me. And so we want to be the type of people who don't keep record of our own good, right? We don't want to be the type, and, and, and we're tempted to do this, right? Like, I'm tempted to do this. I'm tempted to keep a record keeping of all the good that I do and all the bad that you do, right? I mean, I do this, I'm, I'm tempted to do this in all of my relationships, tempted to do this with my kids, with my wife, with my coworkers, right? I'm very quick. I could give you a list probably today of the good things that I've done for these people lately. And I can give you another list of all the bad things that they've done to me. Man, and it shouldn't be that way, right? I should be so selfless and so intentional with wanting to love and care for other people, whether they give it back to me or not, right? That's the essence of the golden rule that we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. We live this way and we serve others and we take care of people, whether they ever do that back to us. 
And we don't keep a record of right and wrong of what we're doing right and what other people are doing wrong. And we're called to these type of good works, not for our own glory, but for his glory. So I challenge you to think through, how are you using your gifts, your abilities, your resources, your past experiences as a means of serving others for God's glory? We're all called to be faithful and intentional with good works. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So while I don't want you typically keeping a record of your right doing and your good works, I would challenge you to pause and ask your, your, yourself the question today, what are the good works that I'm currently doing right now? Am I intentionally seeking to serve others? How am I using the gifts, the abilities, and the resources that God has given to me? Am I using those to invest in others? Am I using those to, to produce glory and honor for him? All right? Two weeks ago, we looked at the way we were not. So we saw the, the active things that we were doing before Christ in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul draws attention to the fact that there were all these things that we were missing. So he tells us all the things that were absolutely true about us in verses 1 through 3. We were actively living out the passions of our flesh, following the course of this world. But what were some of the things that we were lacking in verses 11 and 12 before Christ? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These things were also true about us before Jesus, right? We had no concept or no anticipation of the Messiah, no uh, fellowship with God's people, uh, no hope, no God, no, no promises to rely upon. Now, I told you the, the point that Paul's driving home here is really meant towards a Gentile audience, right? Not that the Jews were born into a state of having the Messiah or having the promises or having the covenants or any of those things. But if you were born as a Jew, you did get exposure to those things, right? A Jewish boy, a Jewish girl would have heard about the Messiah, would have heard about the promises, would have heard about all these things growing up even before they ever expressed faith. Now, I told you today, some of this has been tweaked a little bit that I believe as churched people, we kind of fit the category of the Jewish person that Paul had in mind here. As churched individuals, people who grew up in a family where mom or dad or both or grandparent were Christians, we were probably exposed to these things early and often. We knew about Jesus. We knew about him being the Messiah. We knew about the promises. We knew about what it looked like to be in fellowship with God's people and to reap the benefits of being in fellowship with God's people, even if we didn't enjoy that same spiritual fellowship with them until we expressed faith, right? But we can also see ourselves as Gentiles, even though we've been church for a lot of us, in that at some point our Gentile relatives were not churched, were not part of God's people, and God sovereignly brought them into the fellowship. So while we don't necessarily feel that Gentile Jewish tension today, we can certainly be appreciative that at some point in the past, our Gentile relatives got called into faith with Christ and that is translated now to us being exposed to the things of Christ early and often, drawing us to salvation, right? Um, as unbelieving Gentiles, we were extra far away from the blessings and benefits of God. But now that has been changed by Christ, giving us reason to find meaningful hope and community with God and his people. 
We remember this past again to maintain gratitude and humility. We were missing all these things, but now today we can rely upon our present, our new condition for hope and community. We now have access to all of these things. If you're a believer today, you do have hope of Messiah. You do have hope of the promises of God. You do have fellowship with God's people. You do have hope. You do have a God actively working kindness in your life, and we can be grateful and thankful for that. We used to not have these things, and now we do. And so we can praise God for the circumstances that he brings our way. Uh, We can praise him for the fact that he overcame our past circumstances to save us. And then that should also challenge us not to be guilty of judging people who aren't saved today too, right? So if you'll remember who you were before Christ, particularly from the Gentile side of things, alienated from the commonwealth of God's people, you've been saved. And now we see other people who, who remain in that previous condition, people who aren't church, people who don't know about Jesus. If we're not careful, we judge them. We hold them to high standards and we're critical of them. But we can be reminded that they too share a condition that we used to have and that Christ overcame that. And we can pray that Christ would overcome it for them too. Last week we saw verse 13, what it looks like to, being, to go from being far away from the things of God to being brought near to the things of God. Christ's blood radically alters the Gentile's sinful past, enabling the Gentile to now draw near to God and his promises by being saved the same way as the Jew. All right, so what we're going to see through the rest of chapter 2 here is that Jews and Gentiles alike are saved the same way, and God is saving Jew and Gentile to make one people of God, right? And so in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His blood has radically altered our past. We can now draw near to God and his promises by being saved through his mercy and through faith. This is another big but here in in this passage, chapter two. We saw back in verse four, but God being rich in mercy, he chose to intervene. He chose to change our sinful past. And once again in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, people who used to not know Jesus, people who used to be alienated from the things of Christ, that's no longer true for us. But now in Christ Jesus, we've had our identity radically changed. As Gentiles, we've now been brought near to God. We believe the blood of Christ can and does alter our past. Um, We're in Christ Jesus now, makes everything different. We don't live in the past. I've been challenging you to remember this past, but we don't live there. We don't don't grow despair uh, from thinking about this. We remember it to keep us humble, but then we live in the present condition of what Scripture says about us now. We're in Christ. Um, A new identity has been given to us, and it can't be taken from us. I told you last week, The world would have us to find our identity in the things of this world, the roles that we play, right? Uh, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm I'm an employee at this company, I'm an athlete, I'm an artist. And what we find is that those things can be taken from us, right? Those things can be stripped of us. There could be a day where you're no longer a husband or a wife or a, um, a mother or a dad. There could become a point where you don't work for that company anymore or you don't have the same abilities that you had previously. The identity that can't be taken is the fact that we are in Christ. That is sealed for all eternity. So we can find great hope in that. 
We believe that the blood of Christ can and does impact our present. Not only has it changed our past, it impacts our present. We're near to Christ, which means we should be far from the things of this world, right? We saw in our D groups and C groups this past month that James chapter 4 says you can't be friends with God and friends with the world. You're enemy of one, right? You can't, you can't have dual friendship with Christ and the world. You're an enemy of one, and we want to be enemies of the world and to the world versus with God, right? So as we come to Christ, as we draw near to him, we should be drawing away from the things of this world to where we are perceived of as enemies of this world. Application from last week, am I enjoying the fruit of being near to God by experiencing less conflict in my relationships with others because I'm finding satisfaction in his promises and plans for me? Am I, am I experiencing the fruit of being near to God Am I experiencing the fellowship that I'm supposed to enjoy with God's people? Because that's what I used to be far away from, and now I've been brought near. Am I enjoying that now? Am I experiencing less conflict because I'm finding satisfaction in the promises and plans that he has for me? All right, so that's like our last six or seven sermons in Ephesians. I want to give you real quickly now three things to remember from all that, because nothing really new there, just a big recap. Three things to remember, and then three things to do in response to that, okay? Three things to remember, and then three things that we need to do, all right? So let's look at the three things to remember real quick. If you're a Christian, you had a dark past, possibly even darker than others, which reminds us that we do nothing to earn salvation. And this is true for all of us in here, right? Whether you were churched, grew up, and knew about Jesus, you had a dark past, and he had to overcome that to save you. But you may have grown up in a setting where you didn't have believing parents or believing grandparents that pointed you to Christ, and God had to intervene sometime later in your life. And because of that, you may have had a darker past because you didn't grow up with an anticipation of a Messiah or hearing the promises of God. You didn't have mom or dad reading to you the Jesus storybook Bible. You didn't have Sunday school classes you were going to where you knew the stories of the Old Testament. Your, your past may have been darker, but Regardless, all of us had a dark past that Christ overcame to save us, which reminds us we don't do anything to earn salvation. Number two, if you're a Christian, you have been forever changed by Christ's blood, and you now are the object of his kindness for all eternity. That's true about you today, too, and I want you to remember that. If you're a Christian, you had a dark past. But if you're a Christian, you've been forever changed by the blood of Christ and you've now become the object of his kindness for all eternity. He's a good, kind God, particularly to those who are his, right? And so we can believe in that and rest in that today. And then number three, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to get to work to help carry out the plans of God, right? He has chosen to include us in these good works and plans that he prepared beforehand for us to do. So if you're a Christian, Dark past, you didn't do anything to earn God's favor, he chose to give it to you. And if he's chosen to give it to you, he has radically changed you by Christ's blood, and you've gone from being a children of wrath to be a, children of, uh, to be a child of kindness, right? Children of wrath to children of kindness is what's been done by the blood of Christ. And if that's true about you, you now have a responsibility to produce good works. That's what you're called to do. That's what God has prepared beforehand. It's a fruit of your salvation. These are three key truths that as I look back over the course of chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, there'll obviously be things that you forget because our brains aren't going to retain everything. I'd in, I challenge you and encourage you to remember these three things. Dark past, unbelievably 
changed present, and now responsibility that comes with that. All right? What do we do now? What should I do in response to what we've been hearing over the past several weeks? Number one, don't be guilty of judging others who are still caught up in sin. Instead, keep on being a light and pray diligently for them. Okay? We don't want to be what Paul is insinuating here, that the Jews were guilty of judging those who were outside the covenant, outside the family of God. There was that tension between Jew and Gentile, and the Jews looked down on the Gentiles for it. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be guilty of judging others who are outside of Christ, outside of the things of God, and still caught up in their sin. We don't judge them because that's who we were. That's who we were before Christ, right? We all had that dark past. So we're no better than them. We're no better than the lost people that are out there. We're no better than your lost coworkers or your lost family members or your lost neighbors, right? We're no better than them. We keep being a light. We keep praying that God would change their life like he's changed ours. So let me encourage you to even think through family members and friends that you have that you know are lost, to not lose heart, to keep sharing the gospel faithfully with them, but to also pray that God would be the supernatural change that they need to turn their hearts to him. Number two, don't be guilty of questioning God's goodness when circumstances are bleak. Instead, keep looking for his guaranteed kindness. We all need to hear that truth because we always find ourselves in circumstances that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. And we would be tempted to question God's goodness. Lots of people walk away from the faith because they perceive God doing something or allowing something in their life that they don't perceive to be good, don't perceive to be kind, and so they walk away from it. They abandon him. They want nothing to do with it. And true Christians, enlightened Christians, see their circumstances through the lens of God's word, and we look for his guaranteed kindness in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And then number three, don't be guilty of removing good works altogether. Instead, put them properly in the timeline of salvation and work for him today, right? If we're not careful, we become so sensitive to the concept of good works, and we know the gospel says that we are saved without our good works. If we're not careful, we take good works and we just throw it out completely, right? And we become what what is commonly called antinomianism, where basically you get saved and then you can live however you want to because God's grace and mercy is so great to overcome your sin. And it's absolutely God's grace and mercy that overcomes all of our sins, right? We're not going to take away from that truth, but we don't want to take the concept of good works and just say, hey, they have no place in our salvation because Ephesians 2 says they have a very important place in our salvation. If you understand the timeline correctly, right? That good works don't come before salvation, they come after salvation. They're not the grounds for why we're saved. They're the fruit for what happens after we are saved. So don't throw it out completely and think, man, I can get saved and then just do whatever I want to. Instead, see them in the proper timeline that God has destined and prepared that we follow him with these good works. And so let's look for ways to use the gifts and abilities that he's given to us. Let's look for ways to magnify him and glorify him in our unique ways, because here's the cool thing, is that we don't all do this the same way, right? We don't all have the same family. We don't all live in the same neighborhood. We don't all work at the same job place. We get to do this uniquely. God has gifted each of you with unique gifts, unique, uh, unique abilities. As image bearers of God, he has equipped you 
to show his greatness in the context that he's placed you. So let me again encourage you. We're not in the habit of keeping a record of our good works. But for today, for this week, kind of pause and stop and say, am I being faithful? Am I being faithful to produce good in my life the way that God has called me to? All right, real quick, the recap of the identity truths that we've written down over the past several weeks. These are things that are true about you if you're a Christian. Every Christian used to be dead in sin, enslaved to bodily passions, and drawn to the things of the satanic world, but no longer is. Every Christian was first loved by God and made alive, raised and exalted with Christ to be kept as an eternal display of his kindness. Every Christian is saved by grace and without works. Every Christian is saved by grace to work. Number five, every Christian enjoys hope and community found in the promises and people of God. And then number six, every Christian now enjoys nearness to God and the things of God on the grounds of Christ's blood. I encourage you to be processing and thinking through these things as we get ready to leave today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives instructions for partaking of the Lord's Supper. And the reason that we do the Lord's Supper on Application Sunday is, again, because this is a day that we've set aside to remind ourselves, to remind each other that we're committed to being doers and not just hearers. Um, And I believe that the Lord's Supper is given to us as that regular means of public confession that we still want to follow Jesus. Um, It's kind of a renewal, a, a renewal of the promises that we've made to commit our lives to Him. And so, Um, Really, the Lord's Supper is something that's meant for us personally, but it's also meant to be done corporately as a means of encouragement to each other, right? That as we get ready to leave today and we read these things and process these things and say, you know what, I want to live this way, that we know we're not doing that by ourselves, that we're surrounded by a community of people who are also seeking to cling to the promises of God and live that out in obedience. And so the Lord's Supper is a way for us to do that, to celebrate that we aren't believing in our good works. We're believing in the works that are represented through that juice back there and the blood, or, or the juice and the bread, representing the blood and the life of Christ. Here at Sovereign Hope, we believe that the Lord's Supper is something that we do in an act of obedience, but it is not an act done to save us, right? And so you're not saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper because it's no different than any other good work. They don't save us, Right? But it is part of that good work, I think, that comes after salvation. We do participate in this as an act of obedience. Um, We are confessing by partaking that we're trusting in the work of Jesus over our own good works. All right. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're going to do this together today. And we also believe here at Sovereign Hope that this is for believers, believers only, uh, but believers whether you're a member of our church or not. And so if you're a believer here today, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. We welcome your fellowship today, even as a visitor. We do have Lord's Supper 
uh, containers in the back right outside on the table. If you didn't pick one up, you'll have a time here in just a minute to dismiss yourself to go and grab one of those. Um, but we are inviting everybody that's a believer here today to partake. Whether you're a member of our church, you can be a first-time visitor today. But if you're a brother or sister in Christ, then we invite you to partake. If you're not a believer, we would ask you to refrain. Uh, for our kids that are not yet believers, we would encourage our parents to use it as a teaching opportunity to continue pointing them to Christ and the work of Christ so that one day soon uh, they can follow him in obedience uh, to baptism and obedience to partaking of the Lord's Supper as they are welcomed, not just into the family because they were born to you and they get to reap the benefits of growing up in a church setting, but to really become full partakers of the people of God and his promises when they confess faith in Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and then um, we're going to have some of our folks come and, and, and lead us in worship this morning. Um, throughout this entire time, I encourage you to be reflecting personally as an opportunity to worship, um, to be grateful and thankful and worshipful in your heart for what Christ has done. Um, and then after you've had some time to, to pray and uh, process on your own personally, we invite you to partake of the juice and the, the bread. Um, and then we're going to sing together in worship. And then uh, Adam McLeod's going to come and give us some direction uh, as we wrap up our service and then as we dismiss to celebrate uh, baptism this morning too. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've been able to, um, to go back into your word and to see the things that you've been teaching us over the last several weeks. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for the gospel, the, the work of Jesus Christ in saving us from our sinful past our dark past where we were living without you, without hope. Um, Lord, we thankful, we're thankful that you, you stepped in and interceded and that you changed the course of direction for us, that you moved us from being children of wrath to being children of kindness where you opened our hearts and minds to the goodness of Jesus and you've forgiven us of our sins, not because we're good people, but because you're a good God. And you've now called us to live in obedience to you as a reflection of your goodness. And so, God, I pray that as we leave today that we would be reminded of these facts, that um, you've prepared good works for us to be living out. And so, God, help us to be obedient to carry those things out this week, to use our gifts and abilities and unique experiences and unique context that we're placed in this week to point others to you. Lord, I pray that we would not be judgmental towards others, that we would not be prideful in thinking that we're better than others because of what you've done for us. Instead, God, I pray that we would remember what you've done for us and that it would lead us to worship you and it would lead us to pray for others who are still separated from you. God, help us to process our circumstances this week when things don't go the way that we anticipated, the ways that we planned. Lord, help us to remember that in James 4, you tell us to not put so much trust and hope in the circumstances and the plans that we're trying to make, but to hold those loosely with the goal of saying that we're going to do things if it's your will. And if it's not your will, you're going to change what we had planned this week. And we may get some unexpected news. We may encounter things that we wish we weren't going to encounter. But God, help us to see things through the lens of your kindness, that we're your people, we're your children. You love us and you care for us. You couldn't have done that. You couldn't have shown that any more than by shedding the, the blood of your son. So God, as we celebrate that today through the Lord's Supper, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts. And Lord, we long for the day that you come back. We long for the day that we're reunited with you and our loved ones that have gone before us. Keep us faithful until that day. 
Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.